it's my pleasure to call your attention to the bio uh, in your materials on Donna. So I, I won't go, I won't belabor it, uh, but we are extremely pleased to, to, that she agreed um, to uh, do this session because she is a multifaceted, like a lot of the people we work with, I'm sure you work with as well, um, that give us uh, their time and energy and effort. Uh, they're just multi interesting individuals in that they have so much going on. She has so many different perspectives to bring to the table. And that is uh, why we t uh, called this session Lessons from the Front Lines. She's been an entrepreneur at Clarify and Sun Microsystems. She's been an educator where we're pleased that she teaches a, a, a couple of terms of instruction on global entrepreneurial marketing. Um, and uh, she is a venture partner at a, one of the top uh, 10 venture firms in Silicon Valley, Moore David Al Ventures. So she just brings, it, it, it's just a nice, uh, and also in, in given her discipline marketing, which is, uh, uh, you know, an often overlooked uh, part of entrepreneurship, uh, we just thought it was ideal for her to come and, uh, and work a session with us, especially, and kick us off on the last day. So without further ado, let's welcome Donna. Thank you, Tom. Let's see. Do I do that, Liam, or do you? Awesome. So um, thank you very much. It's such a privilege to be here and be speaking to you uh, this morning. I wanted to start off with my fun facts, because um, I haven't had the opportunity to see a lot of your fun facts. And I have a fun fact that I usually use, which kind of relates to speaking in front of crowds like this, which is that um, I had the privilege of dancing on three American Bandstand programs. Not many people know that about me. That's my little fun fact. Um, but the other fun fact that's probably a little bit more relevant to this audience and this crowd is that I've, um, in the last eight years while working for More David Al Ventures, I've been the interim VP of marketing in 14 different companies. So some people would say that means she can't keep a job, and there's probably some truth to that, but it's been a great experience, a really fun experience, working with entrepreneurs of all flavors in businesses as diverse as data warehousing to supply chain management, manufacturing software, uh, more recently ad uh, online advertising, and even a company that's making a portable energy producing device about this big that hopefully someday will be in your iPods and cell phones. So um, all over the map, I've worked with entrepreneurs, first-time entrepreneurs, seasoned entrepreneurs, entrepreneur wannabes, PhD students just learning to be entrepreneurs, and, um, and a, a huge variety of people in, you know, kind of all over, mostly West Coast, related. And so from that experience, I've, you know, when Tom and Tina said, would you like to come and do this? I thought, wow, that, well, that's a huge honor and a great opportunity, but what have I learned? And so this is the debut, a presentation of what I have learned in that experience in uh, plus Clarify and Sun over the last uh, 21 years or so of my professional career. Um, let's make it interactive. I do promise, um, Occasionally, I cold call, but I won't cold call you. Nobody in the front row gets cold called. Um, that would be called the worm deck at HBS. The back row, if you're reading the newspaper, you guys are the sky deck. And if I see any newspapers out back there, you are guaranteed to be cold called. 
Worm deck, the worms, like the really intense people that were just like all over, you know. So, does this fit? Does this fit? Yeah. <laughs> worms are us. Okay, so, um, so let's have some fun with this because I'm sure you guys have lots of lessons learned as well. Um, in fact, I thought this quote by uh, my friend Doris, who's a British author, um, was very appropriate because um, one of the things that surprised me was on the first day when Tom did a poll of how many of you have been entrepreneurs, are entrepreneurs, and in fact, I think the fact that you're teaching entrepreneurship, you're blazing some trails, so by definition, you all are entrepreneurs and probably have some lessons to share. So when I was putting this, and the other thing is that, you know, by the nature of you being educators, um, they tend to be fairly thoughtful. So I bet you guys have thought a lot about lessons that you've learned. So towards the end of the presentation, I'm going to ask you to chime in some of the things that you've learned too. So if, if you want to make some notes as we go, I will give you an opportunity to share those thoughts. My lessons learned are a mixture of things that will probably be fairly obvious to you um, and uh, somewhat, maybe some unique Donna-isms. Uh, so here we go. Uh, as top 10 lessons, as long as the world has big problems, entrepreneurs will have jobs. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, Vinod, uh, Forrest showed a clip of Vinod on the opening day session that said, no one's going to pay you to solve pro small problems. Make sure you're going after big problems. So this is somewhat of a, of a corollary to that, and we'll talk some more. Um, the second one is... Adonism. If you're going to work so hard to invent something, make sure someone wants to buy it. I think that comes from my marketing roots. It also comes from my father, who was a salesman. And so growing up over and over and over at the dinner table, he would, we would celebrate when he got an order, when the PO came in, when it shipped, when the revenue was recognized. So we would celebrate the same sale several times. So I, <laughs> which I'm sure many of you have done in your companies as well, in your entrepreneurial experience. Um, but I was, it was drilled into me that nothing happens until somebody sells something. And then I went to engineering school and said nothing happens until somebody builds something. And the reality is really both. You know, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, my next lesson is a different kind of chasm. You know, being involved in entrepreneurship, no entrepreneur worth his or her salt would be unaware of chasms and bowling pins, and we all aspire for, to tornadoes. But I have a, a new take on the chasm concept. And then the rule of holes, which is one of my more obscure ones. I'm not going to ask anybody what this means, but I will sort of, this is a cold call. This, this will, we'll see, not yet. But think about it, I'm warning you. Uh, the rule of holes is coming. Um, strategy versus execution. I think this comes a little bit from uh, my feeling at one point that, you know, all the smart people did strategy and I was left to sort of deliver um, until I got into some startups and realized <laughs> all the strategy in the world didn't really make much sense until you had people who could deliver. So... Uh, obviously played to something I care deeply about. Listen, 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 no matter how smart you are. Um, a special message for newly minted PhDs that we work with. Um, align your goals with your funding. So put, putting my VC hat on, uh, we're going to talk about that. This one is the other Donnaism. Develop the market as you develop the product or sacrifice a round of funding. And what does all that mean? Um, the world's best entrepreneur can't do it alone. So this is all about teamwork and how do we teach teamwork. 
And last but not least, we, I'm going to leave you on somewhat of a philosophical note here uh, and something that I think, you know, in the context of entrepreneurship. So um, for our first one, and now you guys know where I'm going with this. You can think about what did I miss. Make some notes about your additional um, lessons learned, and we'll share those. So as long as the world has big problems, entrepreneurs will have jobs. I'm sure everybody in this room has had this experience. One of my students, Sam, comes to me and says, Professor Nowitzki, will you look at my business plan? I'm going to sign up for office hours. I'm going to come in. Will you review this with me? So we review. We spend half an hour or so. We review his business plan. I can't figure out where the business is <laughs> in this business plan. I give him some guidance, and off he goes. A month later, Sam, I see Sam on my office hours calendar again. He comes in, shows me Rev 2 of the business plan. He's checked some of the boxes, but it's still I can't really figure out you know, who would actually give him money to build this or you know, where this is going to go. I give him some more advice. Off he goes. Six months later, he comes in. Totally different business plan. But this one looks really cool. So this one I see, you know, hey, I think, I think you might have something. So I send him off to go talk to some customers, because at this point, it's all academic. It's his view of the world, him and his partners, to go, um, to go talk to real life potential customers about what this might be. Um, and that's sort of where we are now. So I'm going to leave you hanging on the story, because it's been a couple months, but he's off researching and talking to customers. But what happens is, I mean, it's the beauty of working with students is they are going to be on top of the new things, and they are on top of the new markets, because they're betting their whole future on this. So they really think hard about, you know, where are these opportunities going to be, and they really listen and appreciate that feedback. And what I find is, so my background is all in, um, or was all in enterprise software. Well, enterprise software is kind of dead right now, um, probably dead for the foreseeable future. So I need to reinvent myself if I'm going to be successful in my career. And the way I'm doing that is by working with these students and having to keep one or two steps ahead of them um, along the way. So, um, this, so the students kind of force me to be current. In the, under the umbrella of where are the big problems, I thought I would share with you some venture data. Probably many of you see this kind of data. I'd love to see you know, what strikes you about this chart. This is a chart of venture investing. Uh, wouldn't you know that you know, I did the chart last week, and then yesterday the Q3 report comes out. So, <laughs> So, uh, so there's some, I have some updates, but that's all Q. United States. This is U.S. venture investing, right? It's from the PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, National Venture Capital Association survey that's done every quarter. Um, so does anybody have some, what do you think about this chart? What does it say to you? Mostly tech, but within that, lots of different categories. So that's, that's what it says to me, too. That just jumps out at me. Do you think this chart would have looked like this five years ago, even five years ago? Not even close. So what's going on here is that entrepreneurs, and you know who I would consider the leaders, and VCs who follow and give them money, are investing in a huge, broad 
um, swath of different types of industries and different types of companies. So there's so much money in venture right now. One of the really interesting things is how do you avoid doing me too deals? You know, how do you avoid finding new and interesting opportunities that are going to be big, big enough to make our LPs happy? Well, one way is just by broadening the horizons. And fortunately, the world has plenty of big problems that need solving right now, now in the areas of healthcare and life sciences, in the areas of energy and environment, all the things that the deans were talking about yesterday. You know, venture is there for you, baby. You know, <laughs> you come up with ideas out of academia to address these big issues in the world, and um, as long as you have, you know, a viable business plan put together, there's money to fund those ideas. And so to me, that's really, really exciting. It's exciting to me to be able to learn new horizons and learn uh, things about solar energy or about little power generators this big that are perpetual and never need to be changed, or some of the things going on um, with the decoding of the genome. So anyway, so that's, I consider, a very optimistic scenario put my newspaper down here. Um, the recent numbers here, so for the third um, quarter in a row, venture financing has been over $6 billion for a quarter. And this chart, as of yesterday's report, is out of date. It's now the highest since 2001, venture investing. So huge, huge, huge amounts of money are going into startups and in a wide variety of industries. So now let's look at those different industries. I won't quiz you on this chart because it's pretty obscure here. But um, what's happening is software, you saw in the last one, is still a very big sector. But for the first time in the report yesterday, um, bio software is not the biggest sector of funding anymore. Biotech surpassed software this quarter. So that's kind of big news in our world. Uh, but it's been coming over quite a while now, a couple of years. Um, so life sciences have been increasing. Biotech has been increasing. This medical devices dropped some in Q2, but it was back up in Q3. So that's a hot area. Software investing has declined, but it's still a huge, huge segment. The other one that's really grown is industrial and energy down here towards the end. Five years ago, that wasn't even on the chart. You know, now it's a very significant sector. Um, and in particular, alternative energy deals. And then the other one that doesn't really show up because it's a horizontal, it crosses a number of these different segments, is the internet. So people who think the software is dead or the internet revolution is over need to think again. Um, in second quarter, it was, what is my number here, $916 million invested in internet-related businesses. Uh, third quarter, it was $1.1 in internet-related businesses. So the internet is alive and well and thriving, and there continue to be a huge number of investment opportunities in that area. But you see them in the software segment. You see them in the media and entertainment segment. You see them in IT services. They're kind of spread off across all these different sectors. The other thing that I found interesting in yesterday's report is that telecom is back. So telecom's been in the doldrums just completely, you know, not even buying anything for quite a few years. This year, this quarter, um, and last two, telecom is starting to grow and telecom is starting to be um, a viable 
sector segment again. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the other thing, the other way to slice the data is what's, at what stage. So, and I think what we're seeing here is more and more early stage deals, seed and first round of funding, Series A funding. Um, the, I would say the reason for that is that there's so much money in the system, in the venture world, that if you want to make the kind of returns that we need to make for our LPs, you need to start pretty early. You need to incubate deals. You need to have entrepreneurs in residence. You need to be working closely with the universities. So if you've noticed an influx of VCs on your campuses recently, how many has any, anybody noticed that? Yeah. That's, that's why. Because the big returns are going to be things that we do super early. Um, and nobody that I know agrees with kind of what Seven Rosen put out on that press release recently about the venture industry needing a new model. Um, returns are still there. So there are more smaller deals. That, is, that means teaching entrepreneurship to our students is even more important, that we kind of arm them with at least some understanding of what tools they're going to need to compete and survive as they walk off our campuses and into these startups. Yeah? Uh, what is startup here? Is it pre represented? It's all, yeah. Yeah, that uh, startup and uh, Series A is all pretty much pre revenue deals. Yes, sorry, forgot to label that. Number of deals. Okay. Um, oh, I was going to tell you about the one deal that we did um, was two two PhDs out of Caltech um, had this. This is you know I keep referring to this little energy device um, because it's so relevant here. They were just two PhDs out of Caltech. It was a PhD thesis that you could generate energy from moving um, little balls over a specific kind of surface. Um, I'm not the one to describe how it works. <laughs> uh, but it was a thesis. It was a theory. It was an idea when we funded it. And that was about a year and a half ago. Um, we, they were in Pasadena, so we, helped, we sent one of our venture partners. So I have a counterpart at MDV named Randy Strawn, um, who's also a venture partner. Just an aside, venture partner... Um, it, if you kind of think of the general partners as hunter-gatherers and the venture partners are cultivators, that's a good way to kind of characterize how, at least how we use the terms at MDV. So uh, Eric Strasser, the general partner, hunted and gathered and found these two PhDs at Caltech. He brought them in and said, you know, there's some real potential here. We could build a company around this if this works. And uh, set him up with a small amount of funding and sent Randy as kind of interim CEO, um, mentor, adult supervision to go work with these guys. And Randy's been down there for a year, and the technology has moved really quickly. They've used the money to acquire the various um, uh, pieces of equipment that they needed to prove out the technology and build it and figure out how they're going to manufacture it and all those kinds of things. And now Randy's just replaced himself with a full-time, permanent, long-term CEO and hopefully we'll have some demo units in the hands of customers this quarter. So that is a good example of what's going on in venture today in the early stage deals. We're talking really, really early. Um, yeah? 
So it's true. I mean, different VCs have different strategies. Repeat the question, of course. Um, the question is, um, there's some thinking that you don't want to bring VCs to these really raw deals when they're PhD theses or whatever that is not the right path to take. That would certainly be true for some deals. Not every deal is a venture deal. You know, our LPs expect us to build big companies. There's a lot of good ideas out there that aren't going to be a big company, that are going to be a $10 million business, which could be great for people, but aren't going to make the kind of returns that we need to make to justify uh, a venture investment. So that's kind of one sort, is, is this a deal that could be $100 million, $500 million, a billion dollars in revenue someday? Because um, that's the kind of thing we would be looking for. Second, um, you got to make sure you get the right VC partner. There are different strategies. Some VCs will say, just throw $200,000 at just about anything and see what sticks. Not a bad strategy, because some things do stick, and when one sticks, it pays for a lot of non-stickiness. So, um, but you know, our strategy is to be more selective, look for things that are going to be big, and then throw not just money, but help, you know, if these are students that don't have a lot of experience with business, like myself or like Randy, into the mix. So you've got to find the right VC, you've got to find, and it has to be the right deal. I hope that addresses your question. Sure. Okay. Um, so uh, that's enough of the update on venture. Any questions on venture or whatever before we just keep on marching? Yeah. No, it's deals funded. It's funded. It's not exits. I wish there were enough exits to build that chart. <laughs> No, no, this is just this, from the entrepreneur's point of view, it's the successful acquisition of funding. So, good question. Any, yes? By the learning curve and progress and, and stuff. Uh, for years, we have this anecdotes about VCs payout ratios. You know, how many are actually winners? How many are losers? How many of those are stuck in the middle? Is there evidence that VC firms are actually learning and making better investments and sort of have better hit records than they have in the past? And, you know, maybe a little bit about what is that process that makes them better at what they do now than they were five years ago, ten years ago? So that's an interesting question. I think everyone heard it because he had a mic. Um, so the, the, but it was, are we learning? Are we learning anything? Um, it's hard to generalize across the whole industry, right? Because there are still new, I have two or three people that have called me in the last three months about starting up new firms and who would we go to for money. So I don't know, you know, they're, come, they're entering a pretty crowded industry and presumably, you know, I don't know that I would venture to do that. So maybe those guys didn't learn. Um, the, the, Things have changed so much since the bubble. You know, there is definitely more skepticism about it, but there's also a lot of money in the system. So some people are doing this that weren't around even five years ago. Venture tends to be, I mean, a, a, a very kind of lore-driven or experience-driven industry as opposed to statistically um, driven. So 
I know that within our firm, we learned a lot. I can point to lessons that each individual around the table on the Monday meeting has learned, and we won't make those mistakes again, but I'm sure we'll make new ones, and we'll probably make ones that, you know, Jim Breyer made at Excel because we didn't learn that one, so now we gotta go learn that ourselves. It's, a, it's an interesting question. Anybody else have um, thoughts on that? Yes. Thank you. Actually, I think the question, you might have misinterpreted the question, and if you didn't, uh, I would like to ask this one. Okay, you guys have learned stuff, and presumably the other uh, VCs out there have learned lessons, but will that learning uh, produce empirical evidence that, so in the, on a going forward basis, half of your deals aren't still going to go south? Uh, a third of them aren't still going to be where you just get the bacon back. You, you know what? I think there's enough change in the system that even though we learned all that great information, things change enough. You know, now we're doing biotech deals, and so we're dealing with a whole new set of issues. Right now we're doing energy and environment deals, a whole new set of issues. So the most important thing, and this is kind of on my closing slide too, is that we just keep learning. And that, you, and that you learn as fast as you can and you don't make the same mistakes. But the industry changes so fast that it's really hard to, to, you know, to read the book and go, okay, I got it. Now, now I can do it because it just it changes. I hope, you know, that sounds like a bit of a negative answer to your question, but I think it's reality. Um, okay, I want to keep going here. Tell me it's not 10 to 10. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm going to go a lot faster. Okay, I will. Is that okay? I'm sorry about that. Um, no, okay. Um, so, uh, number two, if you're going to work so hard to invent something, make sure somebody wants to buy it. Um, I work with a number of co companies in our portfolio where I'll go down, they'll say, okay, can you go help out such and such a company in San Jose? And I go there and they go, gosh, we got this killer technology. It was really hard to develop. We get a lot of meetings with customers, but so far no one's bought anything, right? So that's kind of the lesson here is make sure that you're, when you're doing your market research that you're taking this all the way to the, uh, to the end question of will they give you a check? Um, uh, and we're going to talk some more about that later. But one of the ways that we teach this uh, in our class here at GEM, Global Entrepreneurial Marketing, is we have students write what we call a strategic thinking paper. And in the strategic thinking papers, the student is the product. And the paper is a strategic plan for their lives for the next 10 years. So at the beginning of the paper, they lay out, this is my goal, this is where I want to be 10 years from now. And then we have them, th it's a marketing class, so we have them apply all the marketing tools and techniques that we've taught them in the class to themselves as the product. So what is their, you know, what's their vision, where do they want to be? What, how do they package themselves? What's their competitive differentiation? How are they going to be priced? I.e., you know, what kind of salary and compensation do they expect? How do they position themselves? Who is their target market? In other words, what kind of jobs do they want to get? And how do they build the skill sets necessary to get there? It really drives home this message. You know, make sure that you've got an objective in mind and that you are applying you know, some rationale for how you get there. Um, one of my favorite 
cartoons here. Before I put a product on the market, I ask myself, will it sell? Okay, so here's a different kind of chasm. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to get at this one. The chasm that most of us know has to do with early markets and bowling pins and tornadoes. Um, this one is uh, a chasm that I call maybe. You get lost in the maybe chasm. And there are variations on this theme. Um, Jeffrey Timmons on Monday taught, said the best way to predict the future is to create it. Yoda, who may be the best entrepreneurial leader of all times, said there is no try, do or do not. But what I mean by this is do your homework, run the numbers, but once you commit to something, it takes resourcefulness, determination, and even blind faith to succeed. So throw yourself into it. Um, don't waffle in the chasm of maybe. And most students get this, except for a few students that uh, came out during the bubble and think this is going to be easy. Um, but 20 years ago, my boyfriend had this poster on the wall, and I married him. <laughs> so this theory, this lesson, applies kind of to life in general across the board. Um, yes, we are still married. However, um, <laughs> however, um, it's complicated by lesson number four, the rule of holes. Does anybody know the rule of holes? John Jaquette, do you remember the rule of holes? No. <laughs> the rule of holes is when you're in one, quit digging. So you can see how this conflicts with sort of the blind faith, go for it, whatever it takes, throw yourself into it. So in venture, we look at, so, so you have to kind of, as an entrepreneur, weigh these contradicting lessons, right? The, so in venture, we look at three things in deciding to make a deal. We look at technology, team, and markets. And uh, so in order to figure out if you're in a hole, that's kind of some guideline you can use to, to talk through those things. But I'll tell you what we've concluded. One of the lessons we've concluded over the last many years of doing venture is the technology, you can kind of tell, it, does it work or doesn't it work? You know, that is about as black and white as it's going to get. The team, you can kind of tell if that's working or not, and you can augment or substitute players on the team. The one that's really, really hard to tell if you're in a hole is markets. You know, is this market going to work? And what we see over and over again is entrepreneurs think the market's going to be there, and, but it just hasn't happened yet, and so they change the technology or they change the team or they change other things, and it's just a market problem, and you really can't change a market. So that's kind of how we look at it, and the right answer on those situations is to throw in the towel and move on, you know, apply the rule of holes, quit, dig, quit digging. Um, how can entrepreneurs and students figure that, that out? Probably the best way is working with people like yourselves, um, third-party advisory boards, and um, other people that have been along with them kind of for the ride and understand what's been going on and bouncing their ideas off of you, off of other people to see, does this still make sense or am I beating my head against the wall? Okay, so that's the rule of holes. Don't forget the rule of holes. What is it? Got it. Okay, um, so strategy is just 10% of the game, execution rules. Um, 
and I think students kind of fall into this more than the, the entrepreneurs, um, the more seasoned entrepreneurs, because they're in the mode of studying. And so they look at analyst reports and do market research and theorize and sit in libraries and talk about it with their friends or corridors or whatever. Um, but my theory is if there's a market research report written about a particular topic, it's probably too late to start a company. So um, that's market research, not technology research. Um, but in general, I think strategy is kind of overrated. You need to have a strategy. You need to know what your plan is for your, your customers, your markets, your product, your hiring, your cash flow, all those sorts of things. But unless you can execute and deliver, um, you're nowhere. So strategy is really an iterative process. Pick a direction. Get market feedback, get technical feedback, change your direction, modify your direction, pick a new direction, and just iterate like that. Um, so let's see. I have this little clip here of, from David Nealman of JetBlue. He's There's the nothing that I've told you tonight that you, haven't, you couldn't read in any business book that you pick up. Um, and I think it's the execution of the strategy. And really, you know, when we do this crew member survey, we said, well, we were anxious to know how we compared to other airlines. And they said, are you kidding? You think any airline would ever ask their people what they think? <laughs> you know, they don't want to hear the answers. Um, but it's exposing yourself to your crew members and saying, how are we doing? And being able to be, you know, kind of have thick enough skin to be able to, to admit when you're wrong and you're not doing the right thing. Those are, those are things that are very simple concepts, but very difficult to execute on a daily basis. So I think you could try reading some of the articles, but you know it's it's pretty simple stuff. It's all about taking care of customers, making them come back, you know, having brand loyalty. But it's through the experience, and uh, that's really that's really the secret. Pretty cool, huh? Those are clip. That's a clip from Ed Corner. Just a little uh, commercial notice there. Um, so, okay, my favorite strategy story is when I was at Clarify. And John Chambers, who was a CEO, still is, at Cisco, was on our board. And this was probably 97, 98. And he said at a board meeting, you guys need to go after telcos. Clarify did enterprise software for CRM, customer relationship management. And I heard that note to self, you know, look at telco market. I go away. Next board meeting, month later, John Chambers says, you guys need to go into telco. And uh, so I uh, turn around, you know, kind of look at the pipeline, and we've just signed a recent six-figure deal with MCI. So that was kind of all the analysis we needed to do between John Chambers telling us to do it because he was out there talking to these customers and Cisco was growing like a weed. Um, and we actually had some evidence of success in a major telco. Between that board meeting and the next board meeting, a month later, we pulled together um, a configuration of our product specifically designed for telco. We hired a market segment manager, we trained the sales force, and we were ready to launch a product. So that was you know, this much strategy, go after telcos, and a ton of execution. A year later, it was 25% of our business. And I think that's often kind of about the mix, you know, back to this point about strategy and execution. Um, Okay, 
So how do you know to set strategy? And again, I'm a big fan of not overanalyzing. It's listen, 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 like uh, the CEO of JetBlue just told us. Listen to your customers. Listen to your employees, your investors, your advisors. Um, always be listening. Um, and in fact, I can't really say it better than Jim Breyer, who you're going to hear this afternoon also. Mark has a skill which, a number of skills, which one rarely sees in an entrepreneur, no matter what the age is. He's a great listener. And you learn by listening. I'm still stunned to see how many entrepreneurs come through our offices in Palo Alto. And it's all output. And there's no thoughtfulness. And it is an amazing, uh, it's amazing that the very best entrepreneurs are very proactive. They're very courageous. They deal with tension. But they're great listeners. And then they translate that into interactive learning. And the organizations tend to be great listening organizations. And Mark, uh, Mark is extraordinary that way, as are many of the best entrepreneurs or executives that we've met. There is also the constant creative tension around experimentation and making sure everyone in the organization feels it's better to experiment, fail, and then move on and experiment again. OK, so Jim's making another point. That's another lesson, I think. Um, so message to you as educators of entrepreneurs is make sure that you teach your students to listen, that you teach them to learn from their customers and their partners and their VCs and their advisors, and to constantly be a sponge. I think that often gets overlooked. Um, so next point, back with my VC hat on. There's a fairly prescribed way that we look at things when we give someone a round of funding. Um, in the end, VCs have to make returns for our LPs. It's, it's business. It's just business. And our LPs are expecting fairly high returns. So that's always what we're thinking about what we have to manage. On the, at the same time, we're on the entrepreneur's side because their success is our success. Um, so we kind of have that tension. Um, but we can't give away free money. So what we need to do up front is when we give an entrepreneur a check, it needs to be really clear what are we expecting to get accomplished with this money in the company. And um, it's pretty straightforward. Again, so much of this is not rocket science. If it's a seed deal, we're probably expecting them to prove that this technology works. If it's a Series A deal, we're probably expecting them to prove one of two things, depending on whether it's a manufactured product or a software or service. Prove that you can manufacture this or prove that there's a market for it. In other words, prove that customers will buy it. At Microsoft, they say, prove that the dogs will eat the dog food. Um, so your whole, you know, how you're going to spend that round of funding needs to think about, how am I going to prove that this technology works? Or how am I going to prove that the dogs are going to eat the dog food, that customers are going to buy it? Or how am I going to prove that this isn't just an early market thing and there's only 100 customers for it in the whole world? How am I going to prove that there's potential to have a $100 million, $500 million, billion dollar business here? So that's kind of typically what we prove later. So it's one of those kind of three or four steps that we're expecting to happen with a round of funding. And when you run out of money, you go, look, you know, here's my market. Or look, the technology works. And that's what causes up rounds and good news. And when that doesn't happen, 
we are just as disappointed as the entrepreneurs. It's sad. It's hard. So um, that's just uh, something about um, focus on what it is you're trying to achieve with a round of funding, which, of course, true to form, I have sort of the contradictory lesson next, which is you got to do multiple things at once. Okay? Um, this is my other Donnaism in the presentation. Um, what entrepreneurs often do wrong is, you know, they take the $3 million check and off they go to go implement the vision. And they go off in their labs and they build and they build and they work with really bright technical people and they come out and go, voila, here it is, sell it. And that is pretty much guaranteed to, that they've just wasted that round of funding. Um, what they need to figure out how to do early on is figure out the minimum compelling feature set that they can develop, not the vision. The minimum compelling feature set that they can develop that has value to a certain subset of the market, a bowling pin, right? So, and the sooner they can get that Rev1 in customers' hands and start getting feedback, the higher their probability of winning the game. It looks like this. I call it the tango. So this is a product development cycle, greatly simplified. Remember, I'm a marketing person. So what goes on that people often forget is there's a market development cycle that needs to go on in parallel. So while you're doing whiteboard to alpha, kind of charting out what it's going to be, you should be having exploratory meetings with customers and bouncing those ideas off of them. While you're debugging it, you should be getting more specific product feedback and developing credibility that you know what you're doing with these customers because the next thing you're going to do is, try, is ship a product, at which point you expect people to pay you. And if they don't pay you, something really bad happens. It looks like this. They start up, they go through this process, they get production-ready product, they go to get paying customers, and they skip steps one and two. So there are no paying customers because they haven't developed the relationships. They haven't understood what the market really needs. They haven't understood necessarily the minimum compelling feature set, which means you go back to exploratory meetings, which means it takes you another 6 to 18 more months, which is a round of funding. Okay? So while I said, you know, know what you're trying to achieve in a particular round, you also need to make sure that when you're doing that, you're building something that the market uh, is going to accept and pay you for. Okay. Next lesson, um, here's our friend Attila. Be a Hun. Feel with the Huns. Build your teams. So um, the chemistry of the management team is crucial. What starts at the top extends company-wide. But you really have to be able to delegate to the whole team and trust the whole team. Um, I'll tell you a story, because this one's kind of obvious, but a story about some, something that wasn't quite so obvious. So I had this product manager who was just awesome. I mean, this guy was so smart, so hardworking. He nailed the product requirements. He trained sales. They were inspired. They sold the product. I gave them all the hardest products, and he turned them into gold. So of course, he gets hired away by a startup, brand new startup, raw startup, as their VP of marketing. Well, this is good for him. This is the career path he was on. He deserved that next step. 
he basically goes to the startup and repeats the same process. He's hugely successful, gets the product out, builds a customer base, analysts love him, press love him, the company's on the map. And that's another couple years he spends doing that. Wildly successful as a VP of marketing in a, in a brand new startup. He gets a CEO offer. He goes to a company that's about $10 million in revenue, has product, you know, has engineers in place. A year later, he's kind of crashed and burned. Company's gone nowhere, and he's out. What happened? I mean, this was a guy with a touch of gold. What happened was he was so capable and so competent and so smart, and he could probably do any one job in that company better than most people. But there are only 24 hours in a day. And once you get up to a certain scale, you can't do everything yourself. You have to learn to empower teams and empower people around you. And I don't know that this is really obvious to our most brilliant students and our most you know, promising young entrepreneurs until they hit that wall that this guy hit. And hopefully they don't have to do it at the level <laughs> that he did. Um, but you need to be teaching your students to work in teams. You need to make sure that they can empower other people on their teams, that they can compromise for the good of the whole team, because otherwise they'll just hit that wall later on. So all the work that we do in GEM, just about all the work is done in teams, and I'm sure that's true with, um, with a lot of your classes as well. Okay, now my philosophical one. So this one, I suppose, could go without saying. Everybody knows, yeah, yeah, motherhood, apple pie. But um, it's even more important for young entrepreneurs who may lack a certain perspective. And the reason is, the as, odds are, as an entrepreneur, you will fail, right? Everybody, it's tough. And failure's not a bad thing. It just depends on how you handle failure. Failure tempts people to bring out the dark side, right? If you, these, most people aren't used to failing, probably don't deal with it well, may try to sweep it under the rug, may try to, try to blame it on someone else. When that starts happening, that's the kiss of death. Um, we have funded many CEOs that failed and gone on to fund them to their next successful company. The difference is, does that person have the character to stand up to that failure, admit that failure, learn from that failure, and move on? Can they admit that to their boss, their investors, their employees, and learn from that and move on? And here's a good concept from Carol here. So as Tom said, I worked at Sun. That was the job I got after business school. And I always admired Carol Bartz as one of the leaders of the company and, now, and the industry. Trust is a big word. And the fastest way to earn my trust is to be blatantly honest. I love hearing about things that aren't working. Because if you hear about things that aren't working, you can do something about it. As soon as something starts being covered up and layers of cover-up and layers of BS, it's very hard to unravel what's really happening. So the first issue around trust is just this area of just saying, hey, this is what's happened. And being ready, again, taking the risk of coming forward and saying, you know, I made a mistake or what have you. I love that. So Carol goes on to say in another clip that employees who fail get their next project and more than, you know, more than, uh, and, and succeed at it. So 
there's no stigma. That's one of the beautiful things about startups is there's no stigma with failure. Failure can be seen as an asset, and it's up to the individual to make it that. Um, oops. Oh, no. We saw Carol. Don't need to see Carol again. Okay, so those are my top ten lessons. Hopefully they made sense. Um, we have, let me just finish the slides. We'll come back and see if we have, I have just two more slides. Think about are there other things you want to tell the group of other top ten, top twenty lessons. Um, there is definitely a common thread um, for successful entrepreneurship. See opportunities. They think first. They do. They are thoughtful about the situation. They do their homework, but not too much because they have a bias for action. They go for let's get products in the hands of customers and get that feedback. They listen and learn from that feedback. They adapt based on what they hear. They are good communicators and open communicators. They inspire teamwork among their uh, among their people, their teams, and they act always with integrity. Those are kind of the common threads of successful entrepreneurship. And I leave you with one last message here. <laughs> yeah, so let's go back to, um, that's end of my slides. We'll go back to other lessons or questions about these. So I have two questions. One is that uh, I hear that services is becoming a very large component of the GDP of uh, United States, and IBM is really tooting that. So I was wondering whether that is reflected in the venture capital investing. Uh, absolutely. What used to be software is now a service, right? We used to sell software on CD-ROMs. It was a product. You shipped it. You recognized revenue. Now you can't do that anymore. It's just not done. Um, you expect to sell everything on an ongoing subscription basis. If that, if it's not advertising supported, you have to earn that customer's loyalty every single month when they pay their bill. It's a service. So it's a total mind shift. And my second question is micro venture investing. And I'm wondering uh, whether that is picking up and has a possible potential for profoundly changing the venture investing industry in terms micro of what types micro venture investing. It's like, it's like micro, you know, finance. To right. I've heard that there are, you know, there were articles in San Jose Mercury News that people putting in you know, $100,000, 25 of them, you know, $2.5 million, and then investing like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I think that is what we're seeing a lot of. Those are, we call those seeds. You know, if it's $25,000 MDD, probably it's not ready for us, but that's happening out in the angel world. Um, but we're doing more and more, you know, 100K seeds. 250K seeds or entrepreneurs in residence bring someone in that we pay a salary to to figure out what they're going to do or write a business plan. So there is definitely more and more of that. It's the change in ventures reflected in that slide that showed more early stage deals. More questions or lessons? Yes. Hi, and reflecting on your slide that uh, was titled Tango and the Product Development Cycle. Uh, this, and then linking that with your uh, chart about the areas or topics, it seems like the product development chart fit real well with the software IT yeah. kind of products, uh, especially we all know as users, you know, putting the stuff out early and getting customer feedback. Uh, 
does it fit so well with the biotech and especially biomedical related uh, things? It does. Um, so oh, walk me through that because yeah. uh, these are not products you can put well, out. Well, so for instance, in we have a deal that's a diagnostic. Way. It's a diagnostic. Um, and in fact, it uh, replaces the need for a pregnant woman to have amniocentesis, if you guys can relate to that. Some of us can relate to that. Um, and it's non-invasive and uh, would allow everybody to go through that kind of test without any risk to the fetus. That, bringing that product to market requires a huge, I would call, marketing infrastructure. You need the American Medical Association to say, yes, this is a good thing, right? That's like analysts right? in my software world. You need doctors to endorse it. You need a supply chain that can deliver this test. You need the um, testing labs to be able to do the blood tests that are required. So that's how I apply that theory to a biotech case where they've come up with this new technology. But unless you understand exactly how we're going to get this technology to market and what, who do we need to get to approve it, endorse it, authorize it, you, you, it won't happen. You'll be set back another six to 18 months while you go make that happen. So you might as well do it in parallel. Okay? One more? Anybody new? Okay, you win. Um, so there's, uh, you mentioned already that there's too much, well, there's a lot of capital available right now. Um, and people talk of too few, too much capital chasing too few deals and so on. So is the problem that there's simply not enough good opportunities, or are there good opportunities but not enough of them are coming to light, or are there not enough good teams to match the good opportunities, and if so, you know, is there a way that some of that capital can be infused, <laughs> can some of that capital be infused into addressing whatever that problem is? There are plenty of opportunities because there are plenty of big problems, you know, back to that chart, so there are plenty of opportunities. Um, it's just a matter of matching the opportunity with the team and the expertise to, to bring that to fruition. Um, so I don't see that all of a sudden the venture industry is going to decline and get smaller or whatever. There's, I think the future is bright. So I will end on that positive note. Thank you. Thank you.